Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash deathdyingpod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is also brought to you by BarkBox.com. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at getbarkbox.com slash deathdyingpod. You're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Just a quick shout out to Daniel Smith for supporting the show on Patreon. It means a lot. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash deathdying and other things. Any little bit helps. Now, on to the show. Last month was a busy one for me. I don't say that to try to guilt you into being grateful for a new episode, but only to tell you what kind of headspace I was in when I wrote these stories. I moved halfway across the country. With my fiancé and our dog, we packed up our small apartment in San Diego, California, and made a move to Austin, Texas. It was probably the hardest move I've ever undertaken in my life. We got rid of everything. Well, almost everything. And then we packed up our small cars with whatever we could fit and headed east. It was grueling and exciting and exhausting. We've been here for a month now, and I still feel like I haven't fully recovered. We're still moving slow, still waking up tired. Just comes with the territory of making huge life changes, I suppose. If you've ever made that sort of move across four states and 1,200 miles, you know how much time you have alone with your thoughts, especially when your traveling buddies are in the other car. How much time alone you have to think about what's on your life's horizon. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, two stories about moving. Moving through time, moving through space, and confronting the next stage of your life. In the first... Staying the night, a cross-country move takes a macabre turn. In the second, the dirt in the backyard, an expecting mother in a new home starts a garden. Death and dying, the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. She came to check on us much too late that night, the owner of the place we had stopped off. My partner, Adam, and I were a day into a three-day cross-country move, all of our belongings packed into a single, small moving van, and we'd used one of those vacation rental apps to find a place to stay 
in small-town Colorado. It was a nice, cozy place, and we were just about to turn in for the night when she knocked on the door. Her smile was too big. Not in an unnatural way, just in a why-are-you-smiling-so-big way. She talked about the house, how long she'd owned it, and how excited she was each time she had guests. And she kept talking, talking about the town and her life there, how she improved the house we were staying in, how her husband did all the cabinets, how a lot of the fabric on the upholstery was decades old. And then she started in on the relationship advice. We, finally, after nearly 40 minutes of conversation, said goodnight and collapsed into bed. The first signs of trouble started just before midnight, a slow rumble that shook the pictures on the wall and the lights in the ceiling. The owner had warned us about trains, and so that's what we chalked it up to and went back to sleep. The rumbling returned not half an hour later. More violent this time, it knocked some of the pictures off the walls and shifted the mattress part of the way off the box spring. An earthquake, obviously. We were from California. We knew about earthquakes. What we didn't know was how two earthquakes could happen, one right after the other, in such quick succession. We shoved the mattress back onto the box spring and were just about to get back into bed when the closet door opened on its own. Adam and I stood up, straight, on each side of the bed and turned toward the dark closet. A chasm had opened up in the closet floor. A trap door just barely visible to us thanks to the streaks of light filtering through the windows. A hand was first, a long clawed hand gripping the lip of the hatch. Next, the top of a horned head, and then the body of the first of those terrible beasts. Soon a second and third of those horned horrors was crawling up out of that hole and lunging at us. Adam was first to move, jumping over the bed and tackling me out of the bedroom door. We were outside before I could properly realize what was happening, and then I was screaming. Adam poured me into the passenger seat of the moving van, and when I looked back, I could see one of those things in the doorway. There, perfectly illuminated by the bright full moon, it stood tall, leathery skin, slick with some dark goo clung to sinewy bones. Its lips, if it had them, were pulled back over massive teeth. Each of its six limbs terminated in long, clawed hands. Its shining eyes stared into mine, and I started screaming again. Adam had started the van and floored the pedal. The woman, the owner of the house, ran out of the darkness. No, you can't leave, you can't leave. They'll take someone else. They'll take one of us, she yelled, as she beat us to the end of the driveway. I heard the sickening crunch, and then the van jumped twice as the two tires on my side destroyed something underneath them. I watched in the rear view as the thing in the doorway and those countless others behind it darted out into the street and dragged that woman's broken body back into the house.
They moved into the house on Highland Drive two months after they conceived. Val had become pregnant over a three-day weekend she spent with her husband, Jason, the longest vacation they had managed to take since they married three years prior. Their offer on the house had been accepted, and though they still had to get an inspector and get an appraisal and close the sale, they felt like celebrating and booked a B&B in a small town upstate. They hardly ventured outside the room, only coming up for air when they were hungry or, on the second night, when they wanted to get drunk. They drove the three hours home on Monday morning in silent contentment, the type normally reserved for post-Thanksgiving couch-sitting when your stomach hurts from just a little too much food and your uncle's eyelids slam shut and wrench open over and over again while he tries to watch football. They had been talking about having a kid for a year before this, but when Val missed her period and it suddenly became real, well, she remembers how her throat dried when the plus showed on that little piece of plastic, how she couldn't get the words out when she tried to tell her husband, and most of all she remembers the hurt she saw in Jason's eyes when he heard the panic in her voice. They talked about their possibilities for days, Jason was caught off guard. Their abstract conversations about children were always impassioned and excited. And though both Jason and Val agreed that they would make great parents, and that they both wanted to be parents badly, Val found herself just short of terrified. The house was bigger than any apartment they'd lived in over the course of their relationship, and once they had completely moved in, it was comical how little of that space their belongings filled. Too much, Val thought to herself often in that first week in the Highland Drive house. We've bought too much house. But then she remembered the fetus that was growing inside her, the one for which they'd been tossing around names like Olivia and Adam and Sam and Mary, and she looked around at all the space that the child would need as it grew, and their house started to look just right. Jason immediately knew which room would be their child's. The one down the hall from the master bedroom, next to the living room. Val wondered if it wasn't a better idea to put the baby closer, in the room right across the hall from the master. But Jason made a good point. When the kid got older, being next to their parents' or bedroom might not be the most comfortable situation. For any of them. Val laughed and agreed. They settled in quickly after that. After a week, the place felt like home, like they'd lived there for years. The musty scent of the previous residents forced out, giving way to the sweet, familiar scent of Val and Jason's growing family. Val returned home from a quick stop-off at the grocery on a Saturday afternoon to find the house empty. Shouts of Jason went unanswered. And when she moved into the kitchen to put away her single bag of groceries, she saw why. Jason was in the backyard, swinging a shovel and covered in dirt. She walked out back to find Jason standing in the center of a 15 by 10 foot rectangle of exposed and tilled soil. The front of his white shirt was caked brown. A pile of sod lay nearby, carefully stripped from the ground. Jason tossed aside a shovel and then looked up to see Val walking toward his now-completed project. 
What do you think? Jason asked. What is it? You've always wanted a garden, right? Well, he said. Val smiled. You're right, she said. What do you think? He asked. It's great, she said. I can't wait to plant some stuff. What do you think we should grow? Tomatoes, green beans, maybe some jalapenos, he said. You uh, want to go buy seeds, she asked, right now? Val smirked and nodded. We can grab dinner somewhere, too, she said. Of course, Jason said. Can I take a quick shower first? Val plunged her garden spade into the dirt and found satisfaction in the grainy that floated up to her ears. Over the last week, they had tilled the soil daily, churning vital nutrients into it, preparing it for her vegetables. She wasn't sure if this was the best way to prepare for a garden, but it's how her father did it, and his garden produced delicious tomatoes, cucumbers, and peppers every year. As she scooped the first spadeful of dirt out of the ground, she saw that their efforts had paid off. The soil was rich and dark, just right for a full and fruitful garden. She dug down, dug and dug, dug and dug and dug a series of holes meant for tomatoes, onions, and jalapenos. Val and Jason had decided on this trio of veggies because of the amount of salsa they consumed. And next to each hole, she piled the loose soil she removed. Once Val was done, she had five rows ready for seeds and bulbs. Standing up to admire her handiwork, she clapped her gloved hands together to shake off some of the loose soil. Jason had slipped out of the back door and was striding over to her. He met her with a quick kiss and held up a plate with a sandwich and some chips. Lunch, he said. How's it going? Pretty good, she said, ready to drop in the seeds. Want to help? Nah, this is your thing, Jason said. Can I slip those gloves off so you can eat? Actually, let's go inside. I'd like to wash my hands. Jason held the back door open for Val while she took off her dirty gloves. And when they'd slipped inside, he set the plate of food on the kitchen table and grabbed her a can of soda from the fridge, which she refused when he offered. She washed her hands thoroughly twice and then sat down to eat and then threw up onto the food. An hour later, Val was still in the bathroom when Jason came to check on her. She wasn't vomiting anymore, but she had settled in, laying against the cold tile, enjoying the chill soaking through her clothes. She stared up at the ceiling, counting the pits in the plaster. How are you feeling? Jason asked. Annoyed, she said. Frustrated. They'd often done this. One asked the other how they were doing, and the other's job was to respond with a series of words describing their current mental state. Jason, though, hearing Val's responses, paused and then repeated the question. But how are you feeling? The emphasis of Jason's reiteration laid bare the purpose of his question. Oh, I'm fine. The baby's fine, Val said, patting her not-even-showing-yet belly. It's normal, I mean. I've been throwing up a lot, you haven't noticed? Not that suddenly, Jason said, not out of nowhere. Val turned the corners of her mouth up, mimicking a smile. 
Everything's fine, she said. Okay, okay, Jason said, nodding. Okay. Help me up, Val asked. Jason leaned down and offered his hand. She had a box full of seeds and bulbs near the now-prepared garden soil, and now she sorted through them. Seeds for tomatoes and jalapenos, bulbs for onions, and some tulip bulbs that she planned to flank the entire space with, like her father used to. She started with the tomatoes. Those would be on the far side of the garden, farthest from the house. While she dropped a couple of seeds in each of the holes she had made, she reminisced about how, on some drier and hotter years, tomatoes were the only thing that survived in her father's garden. Hardy plants, she recalled. She remembered the supports her father always put around the tomatoes and made a mental note to get some of them before these got too big. She dealt with the jalapeno seeds next, treading through the garden careful not to disturb any of her prior work while sprinkling them into their new homes. Then it was time for the onions. She pinched each bulb carefully between two fingers and her thumb, placed each one into its shallow bed, and then covered each with a blanket of dirt. She returned to each of the jalapeno and tomato seeds and covered them, and then flanked the two short sides of the garden with tulips. Grabbing the hose, Val felt a sense of accomplishment in finishing this task, and sprinkled her new nursery for a few minutes with water. The sun, now, was low in the sky, igniting the blue into orange and purple. The wind was picking up, too, carrying some of the chill down from the still snowy mountains. She watched the sunlight dance and bend in the sky, playing amongst the clouds, and enjoyed the cold breeze against her cheeks. Behind her, Jason opened the door and called out that he was about to start dinner. They sat on the bed, across from each other, Jason and Val. It was nearing eleven o'clock, and both had changed into their pajamas. Val paged through a book about parenting, and Jason sorted a million small knickknacks in a shoebox. Val looked over to her husband. He did this often, organizing the contents of that specific shoebox. He used it to store small pieces of material he used in different art projects. There was one-inch squares of fabric, strips of paper, bits of twisted wire. He never knew, he told her, when he'd need something from this box. When's the last time you took something out of there? Val asked. What do you mean? Jason said. You're always putting stuff in there, organizing it over and over again, but I never see you take anything out, she said. Oh, I mean, I guess. Val smirked and turned her attention back to the book in her hands. When she looked down, she was no longer holding a book on parenting, but a pile of loose soil in two cupped hands. Large, index-finger-thick earthworms crawled across the top. She felt a few more sneaking their way out of the bottom of the soil, squeezing through her fingers. She dropped the dirt onto the bed and jumped up, surprised. Jason looked over at her, brow furrowed. You okay, baby? he asked. Yeah, yeah, I just, Val stammered. No, I mean, are you okay, baby, Jason said, dropping his gaze from Val's eyes to her stomach. 
She clutched at her midsection and found her shirt wet with something dark. She clawed, lifting the shirt up and running her fingers through a layer of thick mud. She found a massive wound just underneath her ribcage, nearly the whole width of her abdomen. She looked back up at Jason and screamed. Is the baby okay, he yelled, over Val shouting. Is the baby okay? She plunged her hand through the laceration, through the mud pouring out of her body. She felt the earthworms wrap around her fingers, her wrist, her forearm. I can't find it, she yelled at Jason. Val woke up, shivering, freezing. The sheets had soaked through, and her side of the mattress was moist. Jason was still sound asleep. She got up and went into the bathroom to take a hot shower. In the shower, she saw the dirt still clinging to the underside of her fingernails and scrubbed them clean under the running water, then let the heat sink into her skin. Val could tell something was wrong with the garden, even through the bedroom window. She brushed her teeth and dressed, then walked past Jason frying eggs in the kitchen. She slipped outside through the sliding door. The sun was still low in the sky, but there was none of the cool breeze of yesterday afternoon. The sun had already warmed the air around the house to a high springtime temperature, hot enough that Val shook her head in surprise and mourned the winter. The coming summer would be hot, too hot probably, and it would make the last few months of her pregnancy miserable. She walked half of the 40 feet of lawn that separated the back of the house from the garden. It was as far as she needed to go. On the ground in front of her, out of the hundred or so holes she had filled with seeds and bulbs less than 24 hours ago, were a hundred or so 20-foot-long vines growing straight from the soil of the garden toward the bedroom window, the one she had glanced out of only moments ago. She'd never seen vines like this. They were regularly segmented, ruddy but mottled with green, and their tendrils, up and down the entirety of their trunks, terminated in sharp points rather than curling around that which surrounded them and holding up leaves. Val, made uneasy by the sight of them, stepped around the vines by several feet on her way to the garden proper to get a better look at what was happening on the other end. As she moved, what she heard first and then saw turned her already sensitive stomach and sent the hairs on her neck and forearms so violently upwards it felt as though they would rip themselves out of each of her follicles individually. She first heard the rustling, the scraping, the tapping, like a handful of pencils dropped onto a tile floor over and over and over. The sound penetrated Val's right ear and then lanced deep into her lizard brain, and before she even knew she had heard the sound, the muscles in her neck tightened, sending her gaze right. Her eyes came to rest on the pile of extended vines, 
every one of them using their pointed tendrils to clamber over one another, to dig into the dirt, to drag their segmented forms away from the bedroom window. The blood rushed to Val's head and she nearly fainted, but she kept herself together and backed up several steps. Then, watched those loathsome plants creep toward her, using those countless writhing fingers, like a hundred giant centipedes competing for prey. Once they had stretched their bodies as far as they would go, in Val's new direction, they came to a rest in a dreadful pile pointed right at her. And when she hurried off, back to the house, back to ask Jason for help, she heard them again move, scraping, crawling after her. Jesus, Jason muttered to himself as he looked down on the writhing plants. And watch, Val said, walking around the yard, demonstrating the attraction that disgusting pile of plants seemed to have for her. Jason's face turned up. Ugh. Wait. How fast is this stuff growing? I mean, I just planted the garden yesterday, right? What's that? Sixteen hours at this point, she said. Jason marched off toward the house. Where are you going? Val asked. Be right back, he said. He returned a moment later with a shovel, placing it on the top of the pile of wriggling plants. He scooped one out, separating it from the rest of them. Before it had a chance to pull itself back in, back toward Val, he raised the shovel high and brought the sharp end of the shovel down about a foot from the end. What happened next took the span of about three seconds. The severed end scrambled away from the part still attached to the ground, each of its spined appendages clawing it across the ground. It reached Val before she could react, squirreled around her leg, across her back, and sunk something into her shoulder. She reached behind her and threw the thing at Jason, who smashed it to pieces when it hit the ground in front of him. The rest of the vines writhed with renewed vigor. Val's shoulder burned, then ached. Jason grabbed her hand and pulled her back inside. The things grew out of control. Over the next hour, they reached five feet further, they grabbed and clawed and dragged themselves across the dirt while Val watched from the sliding glass door. Her shoulder turned bright red, then deep purple. Before they could decide to leave or not, the vines had dug themselves into the ground around the house and climbed its outside walls. The 911 operator hung up on them, threatening to press charges if they pranked 911 again. Then, when Val insisted she was serious, suggested they call animal control and leave the line open for real emergencies. Val curled up on the living room couch as the vines crushed the last of the slivers of light that still filtered through the windows. She called Jason away from his post at the back door, preferring to spend the coming moments in his company rather than alone. And then they waited. They first found the easy ways into the house, down the chimney, under the door jamb, through the drafty window in the kitchen. Then, when the painless ports of entry into their small home were taken, the vines forced their way into the walls, cracking the plaster in the living room, 
forcing their way through the sheetrock, slithering down the walls. They knew it was over when the one door out of the living room closed over, and once the tendrils snaked across the floor, the couch became their future tomb. Val placed her hand on Jason's leg. He smiled and put his arm around her shoulder. The dark spot on her shoulder, the giant sting, still hurt like hell. She winced when Jason's hand brushed against it, but she didn't withdraw. The creeping plant, if that's what it really was, would be curling its way around the couch cushions in a matter of hours. For now, they could only wait. But at least they could wait together. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The story was written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Check out the other shows. They're all great. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. <laughs>